this has been a hard week. Um, so I'm grateful that you all are here and how Bob led us this morning. Um, the talk I prepared today, I prepared months ago, um, but it is especially important today, this idea of autonomy and, and sexuality. And so I just want to thank you for being here today. Everything I say is an offering. It's meant to be food for thought, something to think about, not some religious ultimatum that you have to agree with. It's an offering, okay? And so today we're going to continue our two-part series on healthy Christian sexual ethics. Last week, I spent some time talking about the two aspects of personhood we are required to respect in other people. That is their autonomy and relationality, how they relate to us. I also introduced to you three of Margaret Farley's seven norms for just sex, do no harm, free consent, and mutuality. Today, we're going to talk about the last four norms of justice in sex and the gray matters. When is it the right time to have sex? Should sex be saved until marriage? What does the Bible say about casual sex and hookups? And how does that all kind of fit into these seven norms? As I said last week, Bell Hooks asserts that there can be no love without justice. But what does justice look like in romance? Justice affirms your lover's concrete reality, their vulnerabilities, possibilities, physical um, capabilities, and relational claims. In an ethical relationship, we treat our lover as a whole person. They are complete in and of themselves. We do not complete them. Okay. We also talked about how Margaret Farley's seven norms are bottom of the line requirements for an ethical sexual relationship. And that justice within these seven norms can be experienced on a minimum or maximum continuum. Now, I know that's a lot to remember, but I want to quickly review that because I think it all fits together and it's all important. And you can't have one part of that without the other. Okay. And so the fourth norm in Margaret Farley's seven norms is power inequalities or equality. Okay. Power inequalities in a relationship, are experienced when there are unequal vulnerabilities, unequal dependence, and the limitation of options in romance. Being equal in power doesn't mean being equal in salary. Relationships are a lot more nuanced than that. Power dynamics or power inequality is usually experienced in big, big age or class differences. <coughs> dynamics in a relationship are seldom perfect, but your experience of equality, as imperfect as it can be, ought to be close enough, and I quote, this is Margaret Farley, it ought to be close enough for each lover to appreciate the uniqueness and differences of the other and to respect one another as ends in and of themselves. Without equality of power, dependency will limit freedom and mutuality will go awry. This is so important. We must appreciate and dignify the uniqueness and the differences of our partner and constantly affirm the equality in our relationship. Now, the fifth norm of sexual ethics is commitment. Farley explains that in the past, commitment was often understood in as like marriage in heterosexual relationships. That is the only definition of commitment. But Farley broadens this narrow idea and explains, it, and explains the two arguments around commitment, an argument for commitment and an argument against commitment. Many people who are against commitment in romance, many people in LA, believe that monogamy is the antithesis to sexual passion. They believe that in order to keep alive one's own sexual desire and sexual passion, they have to continuously move on to new people. The other side of this argument believes that it is in relationship over time that sexuality is allowed to be incorporated into a shared life and enduring love. The side of the aisle that believes in commitment believes that the healthiest way to sustain sexual interest and the possibility of pleasure is in relationship. Farley explains that, and I quote, 
Although brief encounters can open a lover to relation, they cannot mediate the kind of love, the kind of union of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved, for which humanity and relationality offers the potential. Moreover, the pursuit of multiple relations, precisely for the sake of sustaining sexual desire, risks violating the norms of free consent and mutuality. It also risks measuring another person as a means for our own ends. It risks disconnection from any kind of life process of our own relation with the other people. Discrete moments of union are not valueless, but they can serve to isolate us from ourselves, end quote. Okay, so that's a lot to process. Let's, let's go through that again slowly. Farley explains that although brief encounters can open someone up to relation, they cannot mediate a kind of love, a kind of union of being known and knowing someone else, of being loved and loving someone else, for which humanity and relationality offers the potential. All right, so brief encounters, she says, known as casual sex or hookups or whatever you want to define brief encounters as, they do not and cannot lead to deep intimacy of knowing and being known. But that doesn't mean it's immoral. As Christians, morality is not ambiguous. Morality is not this subjective fog we kind of swim in or we don't really know what's right and wrong. And morality is certainly not defined by your youth pastor. We are given our measure of morality from the Jewish people and the Ten Commandments. As long as there is no lying, cheating, or stealing in casual sex, it is moral. I'm not saying this to encourage casual sex. I'm saying this to deconstruct so much of the shame that the evangelical culture has put upon casual sex. I'm saying this to stop the shame cycle so prevalent in churches and to make it very clear that there should be no shame or guilt in human sexuality as long as there is no lying, cheating, or stealing. I personally believe that sexual intimacy is a sacred experience, but you don't have to believe that or even think that way in order to experience love or the blessing of God in your sex life. You get to decide for yourself how you want to experience sexual intimacy. As long as there's no lying, cheating, or stealing, there is nothing wrong happening. A lot of teaching around sexuality in the evangelical church comes from Romans chapter 12, okay? Where Paul appeals for people to offer up their bodies as a living sacrifice and to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do you guys remember that verse at all? Okay. But the pattern of Paul's world and the pattern of the Roman Empire at that time was injustice. Women were property and treated very harshly. Adolescent boys were often raped by married men. Slaves and prisoners of war were often torn apart by the jaws of lions in the Roman Colosseum for entertainment. I mean that the world that he lived in was a world saturated in violent injustice. We also live in a racist, systemically misogynistic, capitalistic American society saturated in injustice. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about living in the world today. That's not what this is about, okay? I'm just trying to help you see that the pattern of Paul's world was injustice. It's not equality of power or free consent or commitment to mutuality. It's injustice. And that's the same pattern today. We are not, to, we are, if we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, we must not conform to any kind of pattern of injustice, whether in our society or in our relationships. Paul goes on to say that we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we may be able to discern what the will of God is. But the will of God is justice. It's not patriarchy and it's not matriarchy. It's not any kind of relational hierarchy. It's justice. Remember Micah 6, 8? And what does the Lord require of you? 
to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Redemption, when you think about it, even in the most evangelical sense, is rooted in justice. Debt paid, paid in full. We renew our minds so that we can practice justice in all areas of our lives. We don't renew our minds so that we can conform our sex lives to what our youth pastor said. To conform your sex life to what someone else wants is to reject your personal autonomy and relationality. One last thing on commitment. It's really helpful to understand that maximum commitment is marriage or some kind of like civil union. Minimum commitment, the minimum expression of commitment is a commitment to do no unjust harm, a commitment to free consent and a commitment to mutuality and equality. The sixth norm for justice is fruitfulness. Now we were traditionally taught that fruitfulness is having babies, but that does not have to be true for everyone. Okay. You don't have to be procreative in order to be fruitful. Farley explains that fruitfulness can be, and I quote, the initiation of new generations into a culture and civilization and the ongoing building of the human community. So whether you have children or not, your relationship should nurture new life within your community. Your relationship with your partner should bring new life into your apartment and into your friend group, and into your family Thanksgiving dinners. Your relationship should bring new experiences and new adventures and new things to learn. Now, it's natural in a relationship, in a new one, in a new relationship to fall off the face of the earth and to let go of your friends and family for a season. This is normal and healthy and oftentimes really irrational, but it's a natural thing. But once things settle down, you got to come up for air and reconnect with your friends and family and community. Farley wrote that love violates relationality if it closes in upon itself and refuses to open to a wider community of persons. Romantic love cannot flourish in isolation. It needs to be nurtured and sustained by community. It's also important to remember that sex is not a barometer for the health of your relationship. The frequency and intensity of the sex in your life is not an indication of health in your romantic relationship. The barometer of your relationship as people of faith should always be the fruits of the spirit. Does your relationship create peace and joy? Is it rooted in kindness, love, and self-control? You can forget every other Bible verse you learned in Sunday school, except Galatians chapter five, verses 22 through 23. Those verses will always serve you. Does my relationship reflect and inspire the fruits of the spirit? Sex is not the barometer of a relationship. It is also not the ultimate goal in a relationship or the ultimate prize The ultimate goal in every relationship you have, whether it's sexual or not, should be to conform into the image of Christ, to grow up into the image of Christ, to let go of the immature, selfish, childish ways of relating to other people, and to evolve into a mature, wise, compassionate adult human being, a healthy adult human being, whatever that looks like for you. The last sexual norm for justice might be surprising to you, but it's definitely true. Margaret Farley, for her, the seven norms of just sex, the seventh one is social justice. She believes that in our romantic relationships, we cannot simply be focused on our own concerns. We ought to be concerned about the needs and the concerns of other people. But social justice in romance usually relates to the experience of justice with children and other dependents who live in your home. Farley explains that at the very least, a form of social justice requires sexual partners to take responsibility for the consequences of their sexual activity. 
That responsibility includes the consequences of pregnancy and children. Farley also explains that, and I quote, sexual partners have always to be concerned about not harming third parties. Who are third parties? Children, relatives, roommates, children who may be born to one of your other lovers or your adult children's lovers, end quote. Your romantic relationship should not deteriorate the quality of life of the people living with you. Constantly fighting and bickering, especially in front of children, can cause serious harm. And so for us to be in healthy relationships, we need to be concerned about the experience of justice for other people. All right, now let's talk about the gray matters. When is it the right time to have sex? Should sex be saved until marriage? What does the Bible say about casual sex? What happens if my partner doesn't want to have sex? Let's step back and look at the big picture first, and then we'll zoom in on specific issues. When it comes to the topic of sexual intimacy, it's usually discussed in churches within the context of heterosexual marriage. But marriage in the Bible is all over the place. Most patriarchs were polygamous, even though polygamy was not a common practice in the time of Christ, no one condemned it. The most compelling passage in scripture that many people bring up when they want to ident- uh, defend this idea of biblical marriage is Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus said, and I quote, have you not read that one who made, that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But that's where people stop reading. They take that passage out of context and assert that heterosexual monogamy is the only God-ordained way of romance. They completely ignore the context. Remember that the pattern of the world in the time of Christ was a pattern of injustice violent injustice. Matthew 19 actually begins with this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus explained that the pattern of life for ancient Israel during the time of Moses was injustice too. Moses allowed various reasons for divorce Because as Jesus explained, people were so hard-hearted. Jesus Jesus was calling them to a different way of living, to a way of love, a way of justice. Jesus was not giving some ultimatum on the only righteous model for romance. He was condemning, discarding women for any petty reason. Jesus said, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus Jesus was trying to condemn the practice of discarding women in marriage for any reason. When it comes to sexuality, Jesus only emphasizes commitment and faithfulness. This is the only area of sexuality Jesus had anything to say. Do not lie, do not cheat on your lover. And for those of you who do cheat, It's not the end of the world. With God, there is always grace. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Jesus showed grace. I believe that God shows grace to anyone, including people who who commit adultery. Nevertheless, the point I'm trying to make is this. This idea of biblical marriage just does not exist. There's no biblical basis for it. In evangelical Christianity, we're often told that we need to wait until marriage to have sex, but there's nothing in scripture that supports that. There are passages in the Old Testament that condemn women for not being virgins, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 22. According to Deuteronomy chapter 22, if a woman is not, and I quote, found to be a virgin upon her wedding day, her husband is allowed to submit her to be stoned by the men of her town, but this rule is not the same mandate for men. There are no rules about men being virgins until marriage. 
And since we know God treats us all equally and loves us all, regardless of race, class, or gender, we know to interpret these problematic passages within their patriarchal context. Mandating the virginity of women in marriage was just another way of controlling female sexuality and sustaining male dominance, specifically in childbearing. Those laws were unjust then as they are now. Evangelicals who condemn sex without marriage often point to the New Testament verses about fornication, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits, they commit outside of the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. In the Thessalonian verse, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. These are really sticky verses. I'm sorry, I have to even say them out loud, but I just want to break them apart for you. I really want to deconstruct this for you. The original Greek word for fornication is not fornication. It's porneia. Porneia does not mean fornication in the sense of sex without marriage. Porneia is where we get the word porn from. It implies illicit sex. The word porneia specifically means a selling off of sexual purity. So the word is less like sex without marriage and more like sex with prostitution. Now, prostitution, according to the Greek New Testament, context is allowing others to use one's body as a means of consumption for profit. Okay. It has nothing to do with having sex with your boyfriend, nothing to do with that. And so knowing that fornication means porneia or selling one's body for profit, we can assert that there is nothing in scripture commanding that both people need to be virgins at the beginning of their relationship. So let that sink in. There is nothing in scripture that commands that both people be virgins before marriage or chastity without it. The best thing we can do when it comes to these gray matters of sexual ethics is to consider what is wise and what is unwise. The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom tidbits on what is wise and unwise, but they are not promises to a painless future. They are guideposts on how to practice wisdom in life. You are full of wisdom on how to do life right. Your friends are. People around you are. But that doesn't mean that if you follow what other people say or what even you think is right, that that's somehow the ticket to a painless future. You don't get to check out on being human because you followed a checklist. Sometimes we are unwise simply because we lack experience. Kind of like when you enter into your first relationship and you take everything that person says to either mean they love you or they hate you. Or when you're in a new relationship for the first time, you, everything they do is like, they can do no wrong. That is a lack of experience, a lack of maturity. And we can seek wisdom and figure out how to grow and relate to other people in healthy ways. The book of Proverbs offers that, but so do our friends and community members. The worst thing we can do is to do something we know is foolish. We act like absolute fools when we know something is unwise and we do it anyway. There are no gray areas around the Ten Commandments. Lying, cheating, and stealing, and committing adultery are wrong and have always been morally wrong. I once heard Nadia Boltzweber describe the Ten Commandments as a reflection of the fact that, and I quote, that God loves our neighbors and wants to protect them from us. Therefore, we shall not lie, cheat, or steal as a way of protecting other people from our impulses. And so given that framework, given the fact that there is nothing explicitly in scripture condemning sex without marriage, here are some guidelines. You don't need to be married to have a healthy sexual relationship with, with, with someone else. You can be in a loving, committed relationship with someone and experience healthy, fulfilling, just sex, according to Margaret Farley's seven norms. I would also go so far as to say you don't even have to be in love. Sometimes love takes time and it comes softly. 
The growth of love and commitment should not be sped up because people want to have sex. As long as there is a respect for each other's autonomy and relationality, the couple can experience healthy Christian sex. I highlight and say the word Christian because I firmly believe that people who have sex in their romantic relationship without marriage are still people of faith. You are still holy. You are still in communion with God. You still belong. So when should someone begin their sexual life? Whenever they feel like it. Whenever they are ready. The only advice I would give you is to wait for someone that you respect and that respects you. That relationship might come along at 18 or 33. You never know, but don't settle for less. My prayer is that our youth grow up in a community surrounded by healthy adults who they can talk to, who they can trust, and ask questions about how to begin their sex lives safely. We should all aspire to be trustworthy people that youth and young adults can come to to talk to for advice on how to practice sex safely. I know some of you have like two-year-olds and that is a weird thought, but thank you for staying with me, okay? (laughs) The evangelical culture teaches abstinence and chastity before marriage because they believe that sex without marriage can lead to unwanted pregnancies, sexual harm, sexual abuse, and STDs. This is true. The evangelical culture is not wrong about everything. But this also can happen in marriage too. (laughs) Unwanted pregnancies happen in marriage too. Sometimes sexual harm and sexual abuse happen in marriage too. Anytime you guilt and push your partner to have sex with you, when they clearly do not want to engage that way, that is a form of abuse. We have been taught to think that our partners are obligated to have sex with us. We assume that because they put a ring on it, that their bodies belong to us. That's completely toxic. That your partner is complete in and of themselves. They can choose to extend themselves in a mutually satisfying sexual encounter, but they're not obligated to. Nor are we obligated to stay in a relationship that does not feel life-giving to us. Again, that is hard to think about, but it's important. So no matter who you are in that context, we always have to respect and affirm the other person's autonomy and relationality and the concrete reality of our partner, not the one we think is going on in our minds. Sometimes respecting someone's autonomy and relationality is so much easier when you're single and dating. It's actually really sexy to see someone self-actualize and assert who they are and what they want out of life, just not in marriage. We sometimes unconsciously blur boundaries in marriage. We assume that because we put a ring on it, that person has to fulfill our sexual desires. And if they don't, it's their fault. And it's not. Your partner's autonomy and relationality only are just as important as yours. And as you grow, their dreams are still important. How they relate to you becomes all the more important. They should not have to crucify who they are and what they want out of life to make you happy or to conform to you. All right, what about casual sex? Casual sex and hooking up are not necessarily morally wrong. It's just unwise. When you have casual sex with someone and you have no romantic connection with them, you're teaching yourself to separate your mind from your body. Doing this once or twice doesn't necessarily cause harm, but doing it again and again and again over years at a time can lead to harm. With consistent casual sex, you are essentially using other people as a means to an end, but it does not make you dirty or unlovable or unvaluable, okay? 
It just makes it harder and harder to connect mind and body with someone when you, if you do decide to do that with someone you actually love. I've heard of youth pastors liken casual sex to removing petals in a rose. And that each time a person has sex without marriage, they're removing a petal in that rose. Who would want to marry? This is the implication. Who would want to marry a rose with only a few petals? This analogy is just evil. It's not even toxic. It's just outright evil. The amount of sexual partners you've had has nothing to do with your self-worth or dignity. If you're a victim of sexual abuse or sexual molestation, I want you to know that none of those experiences diminish your self-worth or dignity. And if you find it hard to have sex, to even think about sex because of past trauma, I want you to know that there's nothing wrong with you. Needing to heal is a normal, healthy, human part, human aspect of your existence. The need to heal is very human, and so we should not be forcing ourselves to do anything. Your body will tell you when it's time again. I want you to hear Nadia Boltzweber's words on the topic, and I'm going to quote her. Many of us have learned from the church that we become worthy through being pretty and having a quiet spirit if we're a girl, or being confident and a strong leader if we're a boy. We try to mold ourselves and our behavior and our weight and our hairstyles and our facial expressions and our personalities into the shape we thought God wants us to have. As if we could earn what has already been given to us. The Imago Dei, the word for the image of God, the Imago Dei within you cannot be harmed, much less removed. What a weak view of God to suggest that the very image of God could be removed from you or even destroyed. This is Nadia speaking. I'm sorry, but women are not that powerful. Neither are men and neither is the system of male domination and sexual harassment. End quote. Please hear Nadia's words. The image of God in you cannot be harmed by casual sex, married sex, sexual abuse, or STDs. What a weak view of God to suggest that it could be. Even when we behave in ways that aren't wise, God still loves us. God cherishes our needs, vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and strengths. Even when we've had bad experiences in love and intimacy, we are still clean, good, and valuable people. Nothing about us has been destroyed. We might need to get some help and think through and heal from bad experiences, but healing is a normal human experience, no matter how long it takes. And so that is a healthy Christian sexual ethic. Farley's seven norms for justice in sex are do no unjust harm, free consent, mutuality, equality of power, fruitfulness, and social justice. And I know that was a lot to digest, but I am so grateful that you stuck with me. If you want to listen to it a little bit more, I've outlined it in a four-part series on my podcast called The Unlearning Podcast. It's easier to digest if you hear it slowly, but um, those are her norms. And I'm I, I think they're really important for kind of shaping a sexual ethic in the world today. I want to invite Bob to come up and lead us in communion. And then afterwards, we'll have Q&A and anything that you want to like edit or correct anything that I say, I want to invite you to do that. Um, can you talk more about the, the power equality that may exist within ages yeah, and if anybody else wants to talk to that, speak to any of these questions, you can do that as well, okay? Um, sometimes when there's too much of an age gap, especially when it's your, someone in your 20s, an age gap is a little bit more different than someone in your 40s and on, 
because you're still maturing as an adult. And so Margaret Farley makes this claim that your, your, the power inequalities in that context is just not ethical because you don't have full control. Remember, everything kind of boils back to autonomy and relationality. Each partner, regardless of age, should feel comfortable in their own expression of their own autonomy. That's a special, fancy, intellectual word that means I decide who I am and what I want. Okay. So even if there are age differences, that's not a bad thing. But sometimes when they're when you're such a young adult and you're with someone who's so much older, it can kind of threaten that experience for the young adult, their autonomy and their relationality. Okay. Anybody else have any comments on that or any other thoughts about the talk? Yes, go ahead. Um, thank you, Ashley, just for your talk. I've really been enjoying it. Um, one maybe gray area, I was curious your opinion about um, polyamorous relationships, and we can look back in scripture, you know, the patriarchs, I mean, there was not consent, mutuality, equality of power, and just, I'm wondering the people I have in my life around that, just what your thoughts are in today's world. So my thoughts are my thoughts. Okay, I want. I always want to like really establish that that I'm no more of an authority on this issue than you are. But I think um, as long as people are completely honest and completely um, respectful of each and every person's autonomy and how the other person people are relating, there's nothing morally wrong with that. And we should affirm that in a as a community. I I think we should. Um, so many rules the evangelical church has given us, you know, and the last thing we need to do is make more rules because we don't agree with it or we don't understand it or we don't feel comfortable with it. You know, we're not in that relationship. So it's okay. <laughs> like, you know, uh, but yeah, I think as long as they're all fully honest and fully respectful of those two aspects of personhood, that's okay. Yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts on that? All right. Go ahead. Uh, I was just wondering um, when you were talking about the morality of casual sex and it not being morally bad as long as there's uh, those three things, no uh, lying, cheating, or stealing. And I think the first two are like pretty obvious what that would entail, but I, I wonder what you meant. What is stealing in that context? Innocence, um, a sense of safety. I think that's where I was coming at when I thought about that. You know, we can steal things from people in sex. We can steal their sense of comfort. We can steal their power. I know that's so sticky to think about, but I think some of us understand that. Um, yes. Anybody else can also comment on that as well. Um, when you said stealing in that context, the way I took it was, you know, this sense and, and equality in the relationship, even if it's a, even if it's casual sex, there's a miniature relationship in that moment. I think, um, I think of stealing as, you're using that person for your, if you're using that person for your own gain, then you're taking, you're using them. And that's a form of stealing. Absolutely. So, um, another thing I, um, was thinking about while you were talking, um, was I listened, um, a few years ago to a liturgist podcast called the ethics of fucking, sorry. Um, I'm in church. <laughs> um, and it was fascinating to me because I was really kind of changing my mindset around this topic. I have young adult children who were 
even a little younger then. And I was, you know, thinking about how to kind of deprogram them to some degree from what I raised them in, in an evangelical church. And um, knowing the liturgists and I had listened to them for a long time, I thought they were going to be like, ah, do what you want, you know? And um, they were so thoughtful and I really enjoyed the podcast if anybody wants to listen to it. Um, and one of the things that really struck me that I've kind of talked to my young adult children about now is the idea that the way I've approached it with them is you set your boundary. If your boundary is you're not going to have sex before you get married, then that's your boundary. If, you know, whatever your boundary is, <coughs> the depth, <coughs> the physicality of your relationship should evolve with the depth of your relationship up to that boundary. And for, for these conversations, at least, it's been a good way to... Um, so I personally, again, everybody's got their own feelings. I personally feel like it is really important to constrain sex to within a relationship. That's, that's my thoughts on it. And so trying to instill in them the idea that it's valuable and it's wise to, to keep this within a relationship, but that doesn't mean it can only be within marriage. It has to be whatever your boundary is, but it should reflect what your relationship reflects. I like when you said um, the physicality should progress with the depth of your relationship. I think that's really cool to think about. Yeah, that's a good podcast if anyone wants to check that out. Thank you for sharing that. I think one really easy way to measure boundaries in relationships, okay, like really quick, really fast check point is if your partner says that hurts and you say, no, it doesn't. Okay. That's where abuse starts. <laughs> okay. It could even be in the way you talk to them. Hey, that hurts. Stop. And you're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> that's where you're going to start crossing a line to causing serious harm. Um, but yeah, that's just what I wanted to add that. Thank you for sharing that. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to thank you for taking on such a difficult topic uh, in a holy place. Um, uh, I've been I've been searching for a church, and I heard I, I had no idea that part two was happening today. I just happened to listen to the recording of you speaking apparently last week on this, and I was like, um, you know, any place where something that can be so difficult, even outside of, you know, the bonds of church and who, I, what is the ethic, the ethical way to approach this, um, to, to then bring it into this space is just such an, an act of love and bravery. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, you guys are such an amazing church that you even like that you invite these kinds of discussions and, and hold space for the tension because it's tense sometimes. It really is hard to think through this. And yet what you're doing is you're allowing the spirit of God to move within you to shake things up and to actually grow. People can go to church for 50 years every Sunday and nothing like that ever happens. They, they refuse to evolve and grow and you guys invite that. that that's such a special thing. That is such a sacred thing to me. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do this. Yes, go ahead. What about masturbation? There's nothing unethical about masturbation. Even if you're married, nothing wrong with touching yourself. I think that could be like a whole sermon series, sexuality with yourself. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, I think the next chapter and kind of the, my thinking and learning and research is how to talk about this with youth and children, because that happens with youth and children and how we do not, how to not shame and youth or, you know, yeah. Um, but there's nothing unethical about it, even in marriage. Um, so I think making it shameful and evil 
adds to the abuse complex and the control of patriarchy. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Any other pressing thoughts? That was good. Hi, it's Randy. How are you? Hey, Randy. Hey, um, a long time ago, I heard someone say he was a sacred intimate. And what that was is he offered intimate services to persons who were maybe handicapped or couldn't get sex in other ways. But I know that seems, have you ever heard of that? A sacred intimate? No. Or, um, yeah. I was kind of wondering if that was ever brought up or um, it's not just, you know, prostitution the way we think of it. It's just like a form of nurturing and healing for someone who can't get that in other ways. And I don't know if just wanted to get maybe sometimes some thoughts on that or. <clears throat> as long as there's no lying, cheating or stealing, I don't think there's anything morally wrong on that. Um, I think prostitution, the way I talked about it was a quick, you know, gloss over, but there's a lot of work to be done there as well. So I don't want to like condemn anyone for that or shame anyone for that. I just wanted to prove a point in within the context of the evangelical church. Um, but yeah, mm. yeah. I, I never heard about that, Randy. Thank you for sharing, you mm. know? Yeah. That was like, yes, yeah. Thanks. So, oh, sorry. Um, the, I'm going to say kids today, um, the quote unquote there, uh, they're, they're talking a lot about sex workers versus prostitutes um, and saying that if that's that person's choice, that that's okay to do. Um, I'm under the impression that the majority of people would not choose this and it's typically based on past trauma or um, other reasonings. Maybe they were abandoned as a kid and they had to figure out a way to make money. And do you have any sort of a sex worker versus the prostitute? Yeah. And um, it's kind of back to the polyamorous thing. As long as, it is their choice on what to do with their body autonomy, okay? And they're and they are welcoming the way they're relating to people. I don't think that's morally wrong, but um, I, don't think, I don't think that's morally wrong. And I think we have to be very careful not to att to attach any kind of stigma on that. You know, again, the evangelical church has taught us to be like moral police. You know, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong when we should be really, really taking Jesus literally and being agents of grace and compassion and being very slow to judge other people and very slow to put our judgment upon other people. If you don't know what it's like to be a prostitute, you really shouldn't have an opinion about being a prostitute, you know, unless it's, you know, unless your partner is thinking about that, like it really shouldn't, I think, the best thing to do would be to invite a sex worker to talk about that and their morality around that. Um, but if we don't understand why people do things, err on the side of acceptance and compassion, you know, and respect, like deep, deep, your body, your choice, you know? If you're speaking of a healing process in a healthy way and understanding boundaries and trauma. What if people don't, aren't coming from that place when they are making boundaries and trying to move forward in a healthy way, but it's not necessarily in a healthy way. How do, how do you help someone like that who, who doesn't understand boundaries the way that, they should be. I mean, I'm not the boundary yeah. police, but. <clears throat> um, I think at the end of the day, again, we're taught by the evangelical church to constantly look for what's wrong and what's like not perfect and not what we want it to be. But Christ is full of acceptance and love and compassion and the healthiest way to go about dealing with someone or loving someone 
who for whatever reason, for whatever reason, trauma, no trauma, not in the mood, in the mood, menopausal, not just, it's a Saturday. I don't know what, for whatever reason does not want to engage in intimacy. Okay. That's okay. We respect that their body, their, their choice to respect someone's autonomy is to respect who they are, their concrete reality. And to be okay with that. The moment we start saying, this is your fault. You are, you are, you're keeping something from me. You're taking something from me. That's when things get weird and manipulative and unhealthy and unethical. Really. We have to be able to respect. And, and, and if we're in a relationship where that's not happening and we don't, we don't get what we're wanting for whatever reason, maybe you want you something life-giving to you is a relationship that want to talk about religion 24 seven. I mean, that's me and Jen, like every day, all day, like what toxic thing do we want to unpack today? <laughs> That may not be life-giving to you, you know? Having children might be life-giving to you, or it may not. It's okay to move on, but it's not okay to make the other person wrong or responsible for our feelings or responsible for our emotions. We respect autonomy and relationality, okay? Any other thoughts before we close in prayer? That was good. I'm glad we waited until after communion because you all had a lot of things to say. <laughs> On my podcast, the Unlearning Podcast, I'm going to talk about sexuality and trauma really soon. So if that's interesting to you, please check it out. Um, but thank you, thank you for letting me be here today and to share these words with you. Let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Loving God of our many understandings, this is a really hard topic to think about. But I thank you for blessing us with open minds and open hearts. Help us to remember that we don't have to accept anything that we don't want to, that who we are and what we want is just as important to you as it is to us. Help us to think clearly and to seek wisdom in all areas of life and help us to cherish our own humanity. God, as we navigate our life in this country in the days and months ahead, give us wisdom on how we can get involved in creating change. Help us to overcome the temptation to feel helpless and help us to see the big picture in your hand at work in our lives and in our country. Give us the courage to never give up. In your loving name we pray, amen. Amen.